Good afternoon again, everyone. And it really is a great thing to be gathered together. And uh, you think of sheep or chickens. We have some chickens at home. And during the day, they, they're out pecking around. One will be laying down over here, and one will be over here, fluttering its wings. And then at night, every night, they're gathered into the, to the um, house. And it's just a great thing that although we're separate through the week, in a lot of different places, the Lord gathers us again and again to be together, but not just to be together to hang out, but to look at Him and to fix our eyes on Him. And he, I think even of the way the Lord said, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers his chicks, as he was speaking to Jerusalem. And they refused, you know, but we aren't refusing um, today. And so it's really great to be gathered by him. He's the one gathering us. And so it's, we can learn, we can worship. You know, we were made to worship. When we're not worshiping, something's wrong with us. We're broken. And so we need worship. We need to worship. Sometimes we think, what can I get out of the coming to the meeting, etc.? And it's really important for the human being to worship. And we, that need is met as we gather. And there's a lot of needs that are met as we gather. So, I thought maybe this afternoon we can take up again that same verse from 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5. I spoke several weeks ago about the need to add to or supplement our faith with these seven things. And a desire on my heart to really find out what does it mean to make every effort. Because I found in myself maybe something lacking. Maybe sometimes I feel like I, maybe I'm not making any effort to add these things or to supplement my faith with these things. And so it surprised me to find there that although the Lord had granted to me all things, that then a couple of verses later that He would say to me through Peter, therefore, supplement your faith with these seven things. And there's a lot at stake there. In other words, it's an urgent thing. It's not just some side issue or optional an optional part of the Christian faith, there's an urgency, and I want to feel that urgency, and I, as much as possible, share that sense of urgency in your own life. Not an anxiety, because I think there's a difference between anxiety and urgency. Anxiety leads to fear and guilt. Urgency leads to results. And that's what we need. You know, we need results, not fear and guilt. God has set us free from looking at our lives and being guilty about how we don't measure up or looking at the future and being fearful about how we will not measure up in the future. Instead, He wants you and I to feel a sense of urgency. We even had it in our Thursday night meeting as we thought of the promise of His coming. What type of people then should you be? And do we have that sense of, I want to press on. Not just that I want to, but I need to. And it's this every fiber in my being is, is pushing on. For that goal. And so, uh, a couple weeks back, I was speaking about the first thing, uh, add to your faith 
or supplement your faith with virtue or excellence. And uh, I was actually just speaking to Brother Norris, and I'm not sure if everybody realizes this, but there is a resource online that you have, um, which is basically an online storage that has all of the talks given here, or most of the talks given here at Pine Street Chapel, uh, week by week. And so, for those of you who miss meetings from now and, and again, some for work and, and different issues, it's a great place to go because you can share that same message that was given and we can learn and share together. It's as if we're walking on together. And so, um, uh, you, and it's also an opportunity if a brother is speaking on a Sunday morning, you say, well, this person, I really wish they could hear this. You can share it from that website as well with friends and family. So we might as well get into the 21st century. I'm more resistant than probably any of you, but there's benefit to be found on computers. And uh, the Lord has uh, allowed these things to be, and we can redeem them as well and make use of them for His glory. And so uh, if you're interested in finding that resource, it's basically Dropbox, if you're familiar with that program or that online site. And I can send you an email with information to find it. But it's good to have... Um, and I record as many of these as I can. So if you're interested in finding out adding excellence or adding virtue to our faith, go back to that message, listen to it. But really, in each of these talks, I would like to look at Joseph and to think, how does he do this? In what way was Joseph excellent or did he add excellence? And we saw really in two ways. You know, there's, it's one thing that he was excellent in his moral purity, moral excellence, moral virtue. And then it, he was also excellent in his responsibilities that he was given. Virtuous and excellent in the way he dispensed of the responsibilities he was given. Whether in the prison or in the palace, he was always excellent in all that he did. And I think that is something we can aspire to as believers. Not that we will be the person on top or climb the ladder faster than anyone else. It's not that type of excellence. But we will reach the full potential of what God has created us to be if we strive for excellence in all ways and in all areas of our life. And I think as we add excellence, we beautify, or it says uh, adorn the gospel. We beautify the gospel in this world. Because as people look on, they will say, I don't agree with what they say. I don't like their God, but all I can say is, wow, what a human being. Maybe I should rethink things. And I, I believe that there is a way that God can use virtue and excellence in the church uh, more than we are maybe living up to. And then it says, supplement that virtue with knowledge. And so as you're building on, we talked on Thursday night a while back when we covered this verse, it's not necessarily a sequential thing, like first do this, then do that, then do that. All seven of these are coming at you really at once. Maybe there's like a thematic progression from faith to love. But don't wait until you're virtuous to add knowledge, right? So, but here's the interesting thing as I was thinking about this. Doesn't it seem like faith is the opposite of knowledge? Because... Think of the example um, that's given about faith a lot of times, the chair, sitting in a chair. And so when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you say, what is faith? Well, faith is basically looking at the chair and believing this chair will be able to hold me up and support my weight. 
Do you know it for sure? No. But you sit down, and by sitting in that chair, you're exercising faith in the chair's strength and ability. Hello? And so, the whole point in that story is that you do not know for sure that the chair will support you. After you sit in the chair, it wouldn't be said that you're having faith, right? In other words, you have knowledge. But we have here a command, and I think it is a command, not just an encouragement, to add knowledge to our faith. To add knowledge to our faith. And I think that's really interesting. As believers, we have to figure out what is the relationship of knowledge to faith. You know, it, it reminds me of, a, I heard one time of a man who was, uh, woke up in the morning to go to work. He went out to the garage, into his car to go to work, turned the key, and it wouldn't start. So we've probably experienced that in the past. Right, Colin? And Colin knows all about it. This man probably ended up at Colin's shop. He, his car wouldn't start. And he's thinking and kind of agonizing. And then the light bulb goes off, and he runs into his house, goes to his bookshelf, pulls off a dictionary off the shelf, and runs back into the garage and begins ripping pages out of the dictionary and shoving them into the gas tank. Vigorously, okay? And one of his neighbors comes by, and his garage is open, and he kind of watches him for a while, shoving that in. He's like, I, I have to ask, you know, <laughs> why are you doing this? And the man said, well, I was watching TV the other day, and I heard there that knowledge is power. And I believe, you know, I figured if I shove this in there, I'll get some power in my car. So that's obviously a joke. That's my poor attempt at a joke. But let's look at this example. That man learned something from watching TV. But you might say he learned it wrong. Right? He got that knowledge, but he got it in the wrong way. Is knowledge power? I believe yes and no. And we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, as many warnings against knowledge as we have praises of knowledge. And so what I'd like us to do as we think about our need and necessity of, of adding knowledge to our faith, of bringing that in, and how important it is, first I want to look at some warnings against knowledge, and why, why is it a dangerous thing? I believe knowledge can be a dangerous thing if it's not looked at properly and not gained properly. You know, we, you could turn first to 1 Corinthians 8 as an example of this. We'll look at some warnings against knowledge before we go on to maybe getting more practical. What does it mean for me to, to, to seek out or add knowledge to my faith? So we find Paul is especially warns against knowledge. Why do you think that was? Why did Paul warn so much against knowledge? Wasn't knowledge the very thing? His knowledge of the Scriptures, his knowledge of the Pharisaical traditions that led him to... Uh, seek out Christians and agree to their murder and breathing out murderous threats. It was knowledge that led him there. And so he became skeptical of a certain type of pursuit of knowledge 
and a certain type of grasp of knowledge. And so we find in 1 Corinthians 8, for example, uh, look at the first few verses, and this is concerning food offered up to idols. And so you might say, what is the right thing to do here? Who knows the answer? I want to seek knowledge about this issue. And this was, you might say, a gray area. And we have some of those in our life where sometimes it's hard to figure out. Is it right or is it wrong, etc.? And so he says in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now that's interesting. If anyone thinks he knows something, be careful. He doesn't yet know anything. Wow, knowledge must be kind of a, a dangerous thing. N knowledge puffs up. He says specifically, this knowledge puffs up. Verse 7, he, he goes on to say about the truth is, there's no such thing as other gods. They offer this food to those gods. Nothing, there's no God out there, right? So he tells the truth. And then in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so he says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat, no better off if we do, or do not eat, no better off if we do. And this is the key. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge, you who have knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And so we can see in this chapter that Paul is concerned about a certain attitude that the Corinthians were saying, were taking toward the, their knowledge of Christian liberty. They knew certain things about Christian liberty. They were actually free. You know, Paul says you can eat meat. But they were, their knowledge was corrupting them. Their knowledge was puffing them up instead of causing them to love the brethren. So you could flip over to chapter 13. And we see if he says in, verse, in chapter 8, knowledge puffs up but love builds up, he returns to that theme again in the famous love chapter when in the very beginning of the chapter... He says, if I have all these things, and finally, if he says, if I have prophetic powers, this is in verse 2, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, right? And if I have faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So there's a way to add knowledge that basically is making you bankrupt in the eyes of God. There has to be a way as we pursue this knowledge that it doesn't puff us up and it doesn't just leave us bankrupt. And of course there is. There is a way. Let's just look at a couple more. 1 Timothy chapter 6, sticking with Paul. Because I think it's obvious to us, if we say add faith, 
add to your faith knowledge, I think it becomes obvious to us, yes, it's good to add knowledge. We don't want to be ignorant as believers. We want to know the Lord, and we want to know about Him. So I think there's kind of like a, something in us that says, of course, that's, a, that's an obvious thing. But let's realize that, that, that it, it may not be quite as simple, and there are uh, some dangers that we need to be aware of. Look at the very, the, the very end of 1 Timothy 6. This is the way he finishes this letter to a young man. You know, this is uh, school days. People are going back to school. You know, and as you're going to school, you're, usually you do that as a younger person. People go back to school at all ages. But the idea is you're getting knowledge as you're going. And knowledge is important. Knowledge is power. And you read, uh, we, as I was growing up, we saw on TV, the more you know, that was a, a campaign about promoting knowledge. The more you know, the better off you'll be. But he fin- finishes this letter and tells a young man in verse 20, Old Timothy Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Wow. By professing knowledge, some have done the opposite of what Peter says. Not that they're adding knowledge to their faith. They're swerving from the faith. Do you know anyone like that? Do you know anyone who... The quote-unquote smarter they got, the less Christian they got, and maybe even left the Lord. I know people like that. I know people who the more they read, the less they read the Bible. Definitely. And so, I think as believers, we should have a certain kind of skepticism toward knowledge by itself. I'll come back to the second Timothy. Let's just do one more. Colossians chapter 2. Because this is an example of that those irreverent babblings that are falsely called knowledge. Colossians chapter 2. I love this chapter because I spent a lot of time in academic world. And um, I found a lot of this chapter in academia. Um, And it helped me a lot while I was there. And so I would encourage anybody who is either in school or has kids in school, spend a lot of time in the book of Colossians. Because I think that Paul, as he's speaking of to these Colossians in chapter 2, it just so happens to line up very well with their own culture. And so he says, right in the beginning, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And I know that your translations may sound a little different. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that beautiful? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, things that sound like knowledge. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, 
rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So just a couple more verses. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and bound up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is the key, not according to Christ. So as we pursue knowledge, as I think we must, we have to pursue knowledge as it's revealed here in verse 3. It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we pursue knowledge, we're really pursuing Christ. That's how it has to be for the believer. Otherwise, we're pursuing something that's falsely called knowledge, and it's going to cause us to swerve from the faith. So on the one hand, you have a lot of warnings against knowledge. But sometimes, as believers, I believe we go too far in that direction. So if you've ever heard me talk about anything, you think, here he goes again. You look at one side and you go that way, but we go too far that way. And I think that sometimes we have this skepticism of knowledge that says, uh, I'm just shutting my eyes, shutting my ears. You know, I don't want to hear. I don't need any knowledge. I have faith. So there has to be a measure of humility that says, wait a minute, God says in Peter, add knowledge. What does that mean? It's maybe it's not that it's not enough. I don't want to say it's not enough to have faith. But as we've talked in the past messages, there is a need that believers add knowledge, some kind of knowledge. We have to learn something. We have to become smarter in God, more knowledgeable. And so I think that we need to really feel it. Don't turn to 2 Peter, but I just want to look. Look at how many times knowledge comes up in 2 Peter. It is everywhere, and I'm not going to read them all. I'll just give you the, the verses. Chapter 1, verses 2, 6, 8, 12, and 20. Chapter 2, 20 and 21. Chapter 3, 3, 17, and then the greatest verse, 18. It's all through there. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. We need to be knowledgeable people. And so the question is, how can we do it? How can we practically add knowledge to our faith in a way that is honoring to God and doesn't cause us to swerve away from Him? In a way that is pursuing knowledge as pursuing Christ, not pursuing what is falsely called knowledge, the philosophies of this world. So let's look at it. Two, two passages and then look at Joseph. First, Proverbs 2. Let's go to Proverbs 2. And I think Proverbs 2 is a terrific place to start any pursuit of knowledge. Sometimes we think about knowledge and wisdom and we like to think about the differences. I personally have never found that very helpful because anytime someone said the difference between knowledge and wisdom... I would find a verse in the Bible that looked like, it said knowledge, but it looked like it was talking about wisdom, or it said wisdom, and it looked like it was talking about knowledge. I believe they're very interchangeable. What we need is godly knowledge, godly wisdom. And I think the so-called wisdom literature that we find, especially in Job and in Proverbs and some of the Psalms, is a great place to start. And so in Proverbs 2, you can see how the words blend all the way through Proverbs 2. 
I would encourage you to read it in your own time, and knowledge and wisdom are parallel. But let's just see how he starts. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then read the whole thing. That's where it begins. You seek knowledge from Him. He who created all things can teach you about all things. Does that mean don't go to school? I'm not saying that. Does that mean you never need to read a book? You just pray in your closet? That's all the pursuit of knowledge? No. Does that mean you don't need to read your Bible, just pray? No. None of those things are true. But what it means is the source of all knowledge, the kind of knowledge that Peter is talking about, comes from God. And any pursuit of knowledge away from God, outside of Him, outside of acknowledging Him as the source and the fountain of knowledge, is a dangerous pursuit. We need to know that for our children, our friends, and we need to say there's nothing wrong with learning, but you have to learn under subjection to the Lord because He is the source of all knowledge. And I think that there is a way for the believer to take off the blinders that sometimes we put on because it's like, I don't even want to see... like. Uh, sometimes we don't even want to know what arguments are out there because we're afraid that we might be persuaded. But sometimes we need to be willing to talk to people who viewed things differently than us. We need to not be afraid of controversy in, the, in our conversations with our unbelieving friends or even some of our believing friends. And we need to be able to have a confidence as we try to seek further knowledge of the truth that God is the one who's going to give it to us. And how does that confidence come? Ceaseless coming to Him in prayer. It begins with prayer. And then it goes on to, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, is the second verse, second passage, as we think of ways to go about this in a way that honors the Lord. Because really, it's not like I'm giving any kind of amazing new message here. Because the way to add knowledge to our faith is to pray and read the Bible. I wish it could be more like exciting or something. But it's what you already know. And Peter knew that. He said you already know these things. But that is really the way to add knowledge. It doesn't mean that we'll never learn any facts outside of what's in the Bible. But as you learn facts from the world, as you experience things, as you read things, as you hear things on the news, as you hear things in conversation, you're always checking them against the Scripture. You're always checking them against Scripture and you're always taking them to the Lord. Lord, what is the truth here? As I hear somebody making an argument that sounds really reasonable, It's not exactly, I didn't really think it was that way, but I'm hearing this argument about, say, like, what's a a topic? Like, just war theory, for example. 
Is it, when is it right to go to war or when is it right to not go to war? Or something like that. And so as I hear somebody talking about war and peace and pacifism or whatever, and I, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know all the answers, right? I don't know exactly the, all the truth about when it's right to, to kill, when it's right to with, uh, withhold violence, when it's right to be violent. I don't have all the answers. But as I, I think it's right to seek the answers, but we seek them according to Christ, right? And then we read and we bring that to Christ and say, is this godly? Is this coming from God? And so, just two verses in 2 Timothy 2, whenever he says in verse 7, think over what I say. You might say, consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And again, look where he goes. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Everything goes back to him. But I think that there is something to be said for considering, thinking. It is not wrong for the Christian to think. Let's not be the kind of person that... Um, there's a type of fundamentalism that says just point blank, it is always wrong to question. It is always wrong to think, to dig. I don't believe that. I think we are to pursue knowledge, a greater knowledge. We should know more about the Lord and about His world that He's created and about ourselves and about sin and about who we were and who we are. We should know more now than we did last year. And that doesn't all come just by being in our prayer closet. So we do need to pursue knowledge, but it has to be brought under the control of Christ. So let's just look here in the last couple minutes at Joseph and look this is back in Genesis. Well, before you go to Genesis, now that I said that, go to Hebrews 11. And we'll think about Joseph because, as I said in the beginning of this series of talks, I like to think about Joseph. He's a, he's a really great example in the Scripture. He's um, one of the most perfect types of the Lord Jesus. So as we think about Joseph and as we're learning about him, really we're learning about him the Lord a lot of times. And so it's such a great study to look at his life. And I believe all seven of these qualities that we find in 2 Peter 1, verse 5-7 are really found in Joseph. And so I think it can help us be practical in this pursuit. And so he's a man of faith. Joseph is a man of faith. So he's the, we're able to go to him as somebody who, in 2 Peter he says, add to your faith these things. Joseph is a man of faith. How do we know? He is in the hall, of, the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Think about all the things that Joseph did. He did a lot of good things. But what is mentioned about Joseph in Hebrews 11? And in what way is his faith displayed according to the writer of Hebrews? So this is in Hebrews 11, verse 22. And it's the very end of his life and it says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So the, the way that the writer of Hebrews shows that Joseph was a man of faith was by what he knew about the future. And how did he know it? Because he 
Not, he didn't read his Bible because I believe things were different then. I mean, this is a, largely an oral history. Things passed down from the days of Abraham. And the faithful among God's people would always go back to those words of God that were revealed. But it was the Word of God that gave Joseph special knowledge to tell his brethren. Remember, they, they came to Egypt and they're all living there and that was their salvation. There was a famine he moved his entire family down there. And can you imagine him sitting them all down and saying, when you leave here, they're like, well, why, why are we going to leave here? When are we going to leave here? Is it going to be in a month? Or... But he knew the answer. Flip back to, um, this is when we go back to Genesis. First go all the way to Genesis 15. Where did Joseph get this special knowledge? What did he know and how did he know it? And so... What we see is, he went back to the Word of God, he knew the Word of God, and the specific Word of God that he knew was the covenant that, he sh that God shared with Abram in Genesis 15. A very mysterious scene and a, a really amazing thing for Abram to pass on to his children. Can you believe what I saw? Can you believe what God told me? He told me my descendants would be as many as the stars and all this stuff and you can imagine each generation passing it down until it gets to Moses and he writes it you know but Joseph was a part of that series and so in uh, Genesis 15 the Lord is revealing to him not just that he'll have a lot of a big family but look in verse 13 for example know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then in verse 16, they'll come back here in the fourth generation. And so Joseph believed that, he knew that, and he believed it, right? That is what our knowledge should look like. Something that God has said, something He's said about who we were, who we are, human nature, divine nature, something He said about the truth, and we take it as knowledge. That is knowledge. That doesn't puff up, but it's knowledge that allows us to pour our lives out in service to the Lord and to be faithful. It's knowledge that comes from the Word of God. Go to Genesis 50, 24. And this is the way the book ends. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you have that kind of confidence Another way of saying is, do you know things with that kind of certainty that you can say, God will do this. God has done this. God is doing this. I think that's what it means to add knowledge to our faith. Not just to have some kind of, we, we, sometimes we call it blind faith. And I know there's truth there. I don't need to know it first in order to have faith. But I think once we exhibit faith, we need to add knowledge to it so that it gets stronger and stronger and we're able to stand against all the waves and billows of doubt that come our way. 
So if we look at what did he know and how did he know it, the first thing you see is that he knew the future of Israel. And how did he know it? It was the word of God. The second thing, really briefly, Joseph's knowledge comes from uh, from his dreams. So I know we are short on time, so I'll just summarize. You could uh, turn to 41, chapter 41. Because Joseph was a man who was looked on as having special knowledge. And everywhere he went, people looked at him and said, I want, I, they came to him for answers. And I think as believers, we can be that presence in this world. You know, Brother Norris was sharing with me the other day about his boss and uh, going through some difficulties. And at one point he came to him and said, pray for me. Which, you know, this is a man I think who didn't really acknowledge the Lord at all. But basically, by living out faith, by speaking with certainty about things that he knows, right? He becomes a place of people to say, when people really want to know the truth, there need to be believers around who they can go to. Like Pilate went to Christ, kind of in a facetious way. What is truth? He should have sat there and listened. Right? But instead he said, what is truth? And then he left. But we can be that, have that confidence when we add knowledge to our faith. We can be like Joseph, a man of knowledge. So you see in uh, verse 8 of chapter 41 that Pharaoh basically has a dream. And who does he bring in to tell him about the dreams? It says, he brings in all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Right? All its knowledgeable men. All, it's, all the smart guys. And he brings them in. Tell me what my dream means. And they say, well, who knows? You know? That doesn't, that's not our, uh, I didn't get a degree in that. You know? Uh, that's not what I learned. And so, there's a, there's a type of knowledge that these men supposedly have to be called wise men, but they did not have the answers. And then Joseph comes up from the pit And Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 15, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. Isn't that great? When we're thinking practically, this is the way that knowledge is not going to puff you up because you're never going to think of it as something that you've done. I'm not smarter than the other guy. That's not why I know things that he doesn't know. I'm more submissive than the other guy. In other words, I'm willing to say I can't figure it out. God is the one who's going to tell me. I mean, it takes a humble person to know in this way. And so Joseph was able to say, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that's always his pattern. That's his pattern in chapter 40. He tells the dream. He knows for sure that he's going to... um, be able to tell it. If you turn over to verse 25 of the same chapter here, in chapter 41, he, he shares, he basically tells everything, and what is Pharaoh's response? When you look down at 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, and this is the key, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Even an ungodly king had to acknowledge, 
this man is full of knowledge. Where does it come from? Spirit of God. He glorifies God with his lips. So I think that as believers, we can add knowledge to our faith as we go back to the Word of God, like Joseph did, and as we commune with God daily. I think the dreams are a, an example. Uh, I, I believe God was giving him the revelation of these dreams because he was a communicator. He was always in communication with God. So it is reading the Word and praying. We'll just finish by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3 to see a contrast and to return to our warnings. As we pursue knowledge in this scene, let us do it in a way that submits all things to Christ. Because otherwise there are dire circumstances. We should neither be the person who turns a blind eye to the world and says, I'm just waiting for the Lord. I don't need to know anything about what's going on around me. I don't need to know anything about uh, how wicked things are. I don't need to listen to the conversations. We don't need to be like that. But on the other hand, we don't want to be the kind of person with open ears and quote-unquote open mind who basically just believes what everybody believes because that's not going to serve us well. And this is a really interesting contrast to Joseph in 2 Timothy 3. Look at um, verse 6. This is in the last days. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. We were talking about this passage in our study of 2 Peter. We're burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that a sad commentary on almost our entire culture? always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They're always learning and they're just putting it in a bag full of holes. And it just falls out. And who does he compare it to? Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Who's Jonas and Jambres? You won't find them in the Bible, but they are, according to Jewish tradition, the, mag the magicians and wise men that came out and when Moses was there, and they're like, I can turn this stick into a snake, and I can make the Nile turn to blood. They were the wise men. They were in Joseph's position. But they weren't wise in the right way. They were always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And so might we be the type of people who add, add knowledge to our faith and uh, in that way glorify God, not a knowledge that causes us to swerve from the faith, but one that supplements it for His glory.